Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Hello. Hello. It's your fellow Steminists here, and we just have a few quick announcements slash shout-outs before we start. The first thing we want to say is we want to give a shout-out to a very special Twitter handle, at uh, Katie Haskey. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, her name is King Katie, uh, for suggesting the woman that we're about to talk to today. And then... Talk to! Talk about! <laughs> talk about... If we could communicate with the dead, man, if this was a a science history seance, sorry, we can't offer you that. Shout out to goes to Heidi Culver at HRCULVR on Twitter for guessing this week's scientist. And uh, Heidi is a super cool biomedical engineer currently doing a postdoc at University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks, Heidi. Yeah, thanks, Heidi. (laughs) We love it. Okay, on to the show. Yeah. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the collectors. And science was the province of men of noble birth. But I take Mary Annie over this. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome to STEM Fatal, a women in science history podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I keep adding a little little question mark at the end for some reason. Podcast? Podcast? Or podcast. But it's a podcast. It is a podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Like Gremlin. And I'm your host, Emma Like Dilemma. And we're here. It's like a good... Almost 100 degrees yeah. in Texas. We've got the AC off, so it doesn't make a lot of noises. This is for you. We are yeah. sweating in here for you listeners. <laughs> hopefully we don't get too loopy. Or maybe, hopefully we do get loopy. Yeah, but just loopy enough. A little enough. bit. Not too much. Yeah. But this is our 10th episode. Yeah! yeah. It's a milestone of sorts. Our deck-cat-deck-fatal. Deck Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. So why don't we get started? Let's get started. Okay. I picked someone special for our 10th episode. Um, Love it. Okay. This isn't the first woman who went to space because she's still alive, Valentina Tereshkova, and we've decided to, like, only do deceased <laughs> ladies for, for at least a little while, you know. This also isn't the second woman who went to space. <laughs> also alive? Yeah, because she's Man. Svetlana Savitskaya. Russians live a long time. But this is the third woman nice. who went to space. <laughs> <laughs> and the first American woman who you probably know. And she's pretty famous <laughs> yeah. in the U.S. And she, she's a little someone who goes by the name of... Sally Ride. Nice. Yay. <laughs> That's a bit from uh, Mustang Sally where they go like, Ride, Sally, Ride, over and over again. I love it. I love okay. it so much. 
right. Are you ready to hear about Sally Ride, the third woman and first American woman to go into space? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> Good, long pause. I had to think about that. You're not. What if you weren't ready? I was like, no, I'm, I it's, do? it's too much for today. <laughs> I could play this again. So, let's go. Sally Ride was born in Encino, which is like a city outside of Los Angeles, California. Woo-woo. Woo-woo. <laughs> California, Encino. On May 26, 1951. Her parents were Carol Joyce Ride and Dale Burdell Ride, and both of them were elders in the Presbyterian Church. She also had one younger sister, Karen uh, Bear Ride, who went on to become, also become a Presbyterian minister. And Sally's mother also like worked as a volunteer counselor at a women's correctional facility. Oh, man. And her father was a political science professor at Santa Monica College. Okay. Kind of a lot of different influences there, probably coming from her family. She competed in a lot of national junior tennis tournaments and was really, really good at tennis and was good enough that she won a scholarship to go to Westlake School for Girls in Los Angeles. Oh, for... For high school. Okay. Which yeah. I imagine is just like a really good private high school in L.A. So she was that good in middle school. Yeah. She was really good in middle school and high school. Man. To be that good at anything in middle school. I sucked at everything I wanted to be in middle I, school. I took a golf summer camp for yeah. some ungodly reason. And I was so bad, they made me be the caddy no. for other pay. Like, I paid to oh be a caddy God. for other... Why wouldn't they just let you play? Because you I was holding everyone up so oh. much, because it was taking me so long to get in the, the oh holes. Oh my God, that sucks. Yeah. Anyways. I went to a tennis <laughs> summer camp in, like... I think I just went because my friend was going, and yeah. I just wanted to, like, hang out with my friend, but then... I didn't care about being good at tennis, and I, I'm still, like, not a competitive sports person, and everyone else around me, like, wants to be good, and I was just like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not like Sally Ride in that way, I guess, but anyway. Um, yeah, sports as a child, like, it either is in you or not, yeah. sometimes, I think, <laughs> the drive to be good at it, at yeah. least. Um, let's see. So, yeah, she was a nationally ranked tennis player and actually was considering a career in tennis or science in high school. Nice. And Keeping um, her options open. Yeah. And she had always been interested in both, I think. One teacher told her, though, that her mind was too scientific without much creativity and that she was smart but wasted in science, which I'm like, why would you ever tell a child that wait so Wasted you're too you're too scientifically minded and for so science. for science it doesn't make any sense no <laughs> your science isn't ready for that much science also like her mind was wasted in science what did she want her to do maybe she was <laughs> drinking a lot yeah but she did have no. <laughs> middle school Sally Ride was not. A oh, idea. I thought you meant her teacher. Oh no, no. I mean, <laughs> I maybe like, that probably. too. <laughs> you know, like you have those teachers where you kind of know, yeah. even though you're not old enough to really know. Like, but what's going on? Yeah. 
like I had a government teacher where we just watched like the Daily Show every other day. <laughs> I have a feeling. I don't know. He's one of my favorite teachers. But yeah, I'm sure. Sally was deeply upset by this, but it actually reinforced her desire her desire to study physics. And she had other teachers that encouraged her love of science, and she's always credited those teachers with like really inspiring her throughout. Yeah, I'm throughout sure that other, other teacher, teacher regrets. <laughs> Could have been Sally Ride's teacher. So crazy. Like, why would a teacher ever discourage anyone from doing anything? Yeah. Just tell kids they can do anything. Yeah. There's no, I don't know. And in an interview later with Gloria Steinem, um, Sally said, I know that my parents must have done something right when they were bringing us up because they never imposed any of their standards on us and never tried to steer us into one field or another. Although I think my father wanted me to be a tennis player and practice a little bit harder than I did. Which is funny. And she actually went to college to pursue tennis. Oh. Um, she went to Swarthmore College and I think was on the tennis team there. But then wasn't, for some reason, it just wasn't a good fit. So she moved back home halfway through and started taking physics classes at UCLA. And then eventually transferred to Stanford. And finished her undergrad degree there, where she double majored in English and physics. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. All over the place. Then, after graduating from Stanford with her bachelor's degree, she went on to get a master's in 1975 in physics and a PhD in 1978 in physics at Stanford. Nice. Three-year PhD. Oh, to be... Too scientific for science. That's what you can do with that. I know. Uh, Anyway. So her PhD was generally on astrophysics and free electron lasers. Yeah. And her dissertation was titled Interaction of X-rays with the Interstellar Medium. And I couldn't actually (laughs) read her dissertation. Like, I think it's only in a hard copy. Oh, okay. But they had, like... Um, her abstract was uploaded online, okay. and from what I could understand, yeah, not knowing a lot about physics or space, she um, did a few things in her dissertation. She developed computational models for calculating how X-rays interact with different gases in the galaxy. Okay. So, like, so these are natural X-rays? Yeah, natural X-rays... I don't know where they're going or where they're coming from. <laughs> I was about to ask. But what? just like electromagnetic yeah. radiation, basically. Okay. Yeah. And like some gases might absorb x-rays more mm-hmm. than others. And computational models hadn't really taken that into account at okay. that point, I think. And then she used those models to reanalyze data acquired by the Copernicus satellite. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing data on like types of gases in our galaxy's atmosphere. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, and these models were just more accurate than previous models. Nice. That's yeah, awesome. That's kind of my, like, dumbed-down version of I what love she it. did. That's what I need. That I can't understand. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot about her career, so I didn't focus. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. She's, she's done a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So while she was finishing up her PhD, she started looking for jobs. And so this is... 19- I feel you, girl. Yeah. I feel you. This is 1978, and she's 27. 
She saw an announcement from NASA in the newspaper stating that they were looking for young scientists to serve as mission specialists, basically to become the next uh, class of astronauts. And for the first time, they're allowing women to apply. Okay. And so just like some really short history about NASA and just like what was going on at this time, NASA was formed 20 years earlier in 1958, like after World War II at the start of the Cold War and our space race with Russia. And requirements for the first astronauts were where they had to have engineering degrees and they had to have graduated from jet pilot testing programs in the military, which women were allowed to be in. So no women could be astronauts in the first like Apollo missions and all 47 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and so Russia was the first country to put any human in space in 1961 when Yuri Gargarin orbited the Earth. And 23 days after that, we put someone in space, Alan Shepard. In 1969, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins landed Apollo 11 on the moon, first men on the moon. And I think just in general, like, that whole period of time when Sally was growing up was, like, really exciting. The space race. Yeah, Yeah. for little kids especially interested in sciences and stuff. So that probably influenced her want to, like, do these things. In 1972, our Congress approved a budget for the production of the first space shuttles. And these really revolutionized space travel and research because they could carry more people than original spaceships. Okay. Like, the original ones were, like, capsules, and, like, you just sit in them, like... They look terrifying. Yeah. I went to, what, the Nath- uh, the Houston oh, yeah. Space Museum? Yeah. And some of those capsules, you're, like... Yeah. In a, like, a, you're, like, Very a fetus. claustrophobic, yes. Like, in a little ball. Yeah. It sounds awful. Like, so the shuttles are, like, more like airplanes. Like, after takeoff and stuff, you can actually move around in them. And they had beds. They were mostly reusable. Like, they don't, you know, parts of them aren't wasted in space as a part of the launching and coming back. Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. I don't know how to describe the different parts of a spaceship, but... There's, like, the one part that blasts you off to get into or get out of the atmosphere. And then there's, like, you just keep losing right. bigger and bigger, like, boost, like, engines. Right. But the that, shuttles, like, like, most of it came back, like, went in gotcha. and came back so that they could just sort of fix them up again mm-hmm. and they could go back out into space yeah. pretty soon after. And they could also carry a lot of research equipment so scientists could bring things on them for experiments in space. And they could also carry satellites to release into space, which um, satellites are like, or artificial satellites are these things that just collect information in space or help people communicate long distances and stuff. So when Sally applied to the WANT ad in 1978, NASA had just started testing shuttles in space. So no one had gone on a shuttle yet. And they were looking for the first astronauts to man shuttle missions whose purpose was going to be, right, to launch satellites, conduct science experiments, I said experiences on my sheet. Also experiences. And eventually to build the International Space Station. That was kind of the purpose of these first missions. 
And I also read somewhere that the shuttles were designed with the idea of including women as astronauts. Okay. But we'll get to, like, in a minute how they oh, some really, like, funny things that the first female astronauts were asked about in designing these. Oh, uh, yeah. But, like, I'm sure there's, like, there's a lot of information about how the first astronauts had to just, like, pee themselves yeah, and, like, yeah. shit themselves oh, and all this that. stuff. So, like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they asked some very uh, personal questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I'm excited yeah. and horrified. It's really interesting. <laughs> uh, it's funny. So Sally applies to be to the astronaut want ad, and more than 8,000 men and women applied. 35 people were accepted, and six of them were women. Nice. Including Sally. And so she defends her PhD in June. Moved to Houston in July to the Johnson Space Center yes. um, and started training to be an astronaut, which is, like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's um, awesome. So the six women that were accepted were Sally, Judy Resnick, Anna Fisher, Kathy Sullivan, Shannon Lucid, and Reyes Sedon. And they were all, like, kind of had different backgrounds. One, two of them were doctors Four of them were PhDs, a biochemist, geologist, astrophysicist, Sally, and an engineer. And they were often asked their opinions on how to modify spaceflight to suit women's needs. Okay. Like, um, for instance, like we were just saying, they had to figure out a way for women to urinate while strapped into the seats during launch. Funnel. (laughs) Because men... Or a con- wear a condom connected to a tube that leads into a bag, which are also very gross. Yeah, and it's they- not the, it's not as glor- glory yeah uh, glor- glorious glorious that's the word. <laughs> it's not as glorious as a- and they like so they actually and these are are kind of like serious concerns. Yeah, but so- also very silly. Like yeah, it's I something don't you don't expect your workplace. To, like, you have you to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> like, if my workplace asked me, you know, we're going to strap you to a chair, and, like, how do you want to pee? Yeah. Like, I'd be very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, they tried a couple, like, unworkable designs, like this sort of bag design. Nice. And ended up going with a super absorbent trunk, a.k.a., like, major Maxi pad. Oh. Which, do you remember that story about the woman driving across the country, the female astronaut driving across the country, and she didn't get out of her car. Because she just, like, wore um, diapers because she was kind of going insane and, like... I've heard no. multiple okay. stories like this where somebody just buys a bunch of diapers and drives oh. across country to, like, meet their love or to, like, I don't know, escape the police or something. Anyway. Well, without the first women in space, we wouldn't have those. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, like, they didn't even really have adult diapers. They were just starting to be developed at this time. So all of you people who are incontinent, you can thank Sally Ride. And there are other things that they were asked, like, did they want to wear makeup in space? Because anything that was flown on the shuttle had to be tested for mm-hmm. flammability and off-gassing, which is, like, polluting the air. 
And one of the w women was like, I do because I'm going to be one of the first women in space and my picture is going to be taken and I want to look damn good. <laughs> I mean, and so they developed like a makeup kit for astronauts, which is, I mean, if I was going to spend the time to put on makeup, I yeah. would like it to be from a makeup kit for astronauts. I know, right? Yeah. It's pretty cool. That has good marketability. <laughs> and another funny thing. They struggled to figure out how to accommodate a menstruating astronaut. Mm -hmm. And Sally thought this was really, it was really funny when they suggested she take a hundred tampons into space with her for a one week flight. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of mathematicians like, up there, right? Like, I think they could calculate how many tampons you need. Their heart was in the right place, yeah. but... We do not want you to go without. Just We'll, we'll make space for 100. We just don't <laughs> want to hear anything about it. We just yeah. assume 100 enough. <laughs> like, just more... Yeah, just, just in case space flight makes you bleed exorbitantly. That's Which, true. honestly, flying does weird things. But, like, if you don't have gravity, I feel like you just bleed a lot in your uterus. <laughs> oh we probably have to cut that out. <laughs> Now we don't. No, it's fine. Okay. Um, Am I right, though? I honestly don't know. Okay. I'm so intrigued now. Yeah. So, but Sally did say that, like, besides these kind of, like, silly things, like, the selection committee for the cohort she was applying to looked for men that were comfortable working with women, and she says that they succeeded. That's so good. they were, like, trying really hard to accommodate the women and to treat them equally. Okay. And she says that some of the older cohorts were awkward, but they weren't, like, mean or, like, didn't really... Misogynist. Yeah, most of them didn't... I'm sure... There might have been, like, some weird comments, but yeah. she doesn't say anything about feeling excluded or mm -hmm. out of place. So. Or unwanted. Yeah. Okay, so in addition to these, like, new experiences for everyone, the whole class trained together in parachute jumping, water survival, weightlessness, and how to deal with huge G-forces of a rocket launch. And she learned to fly a jet plane, like, so cool. Even though she wasn't going to be a pilot, they still had to, like, learn how to be a pilot. She... She passed that training. So, like, once you pass the training, you're basically, like, ready to go into space. And then they'll send different missions of people together. Like, everyone kind of has their own expertise. Yeah. And so, at this point, like, she is technically an astronaut, I think. Okay. And then they do research and help out other missions for a while before going into space themselves. Gotcha. So, like, she worked specifically a few years in the testing and development of a robotic arm called Canadarm. Canadarm? Yeah, like, kind of like Canada arm, but it's all one word. Was it a collaboration with Canada? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, what a funny name, Canadarm. Yeah. Um, and this was, like, this big arm that was built for moving cargo and giant things in and out of the shuttle cargo bay. Okay. So, like, research equipment they'd be taking or the satellites they'd be taking up there. And she spent a lot of time in Toronto with the other engineers that were building this arm. Gotcha. And became really adept at using it and knew a lot about how it worked. The first manned shuttle flew in 1981. She wasn't on this one. It was two older astronauts. Um, 
And over the course of the next year or so, Sally worked on support crews for multiple missions going into space, often as a liaison between some of the scientists and the astronauts. Like, I don't know, for some reason, the astronauts who were flying things, like, couldn't really understand the experiments they would have to run when they were in space. And I don't think they were letting scientists go into space with them yet because they weren't sure how to do that exactly. Like, they just wanted trained people first before letting anyone go, kind of. And so the scientists had to be like, this is the experiment I want you to run when you're in space. And Sally helped kind of translate groups. She also worked as the first female communication officer to crew members in shuttles that were in space. Okay, so she's, like, talking to them while they're in yeah. space and, and delivering And hers was, them. like, the first female voice ever, uh, like, nice. kind of communicating to people yeah. in space. But her specialty was the with the robot arm. Nice. And that is what got her chosen to be a main crew member of the STS-7, or the 7th Space Shuttle mission. Nice. And second mission for the Challenger shuttle. Um... And right after she was picked, she was taken to the, directly to the head of the Johnson Space Center, Dr. Christopher C. Kraft. Um, and he talked with her about, like, the implications of being the first woman and is she ready to, like, deal with all the popularity yeah. and press and whatnot. And he was just like, we'll help you with whatever you need and support you in any way we can, which is nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, she also got married during this time to astronaut Stephen Hawley, and there's not a lot about their relationship, except later he said, like, they're a good match because they're both hardworking and didn't want to talk a lot or something. Yeah. I feel that. And they had, like, space posters all over their house, which is <laughs> really cute. Okay. So once people found out a woman was going into space, the press was, like, kind of all over it. Yeah. And Sally was asked ridiculous questions like if she cried under pressure and whether the flight would affect her reproductive organs. Ugh. Just like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> People are dumb. <laughs> and she also, in the same interview with Gloria Stein, she um, told her that everyone wanted to know what kind of makeup she was taking. Like, all this makeup talk yeah. is so crazy. But NASA, for the most part, protected her well during this training period because that's really what she needed. Yeah, was training for the mission, and her team itself was like really great and supportive too. Nice. So this was the second space flight for the Challenger. It's a an orbiter vehicle, and it was the first mission with five people. And so there was Sally, Captain Robert Crippen, the commander, Captain Frederick Hawk, the pilot, and two other mission specialists like Sally, Colonel. John Fabian, and Dr. Norman Thagard. And each of them had their own specialty they were kind of bringing to the mix, but they also had to work, do, like, quite a few things together, and they became, like, really good friends, training for months in shuttle simulators at the space station before the launch date. And eventually the shuttle launched from Kennedy Space Center on June 18, 1983, with crowds of people wearing Fly, Sally, Fly. Or Ride Sally Ride t-shirts. Because nice. Mustang Sally was popular at that time. The song. Gotcha. There were quite a few things they had to do while they were up in space. Her, Sally's main role was flight engineer. So she had to keep track of where they were 
were in the checklist and be prepared with the malfunction checklist if anything went wrong. She was monitoring systems and status on computer screens. And she says one of the first things I was supposed to do seven seconds after ignition was once the shuttle started to roll, say, roll program. And she says, I'll guarantee that those were the hardest words I have ever had to get out of my mouth. It's not easy to speak um, seven seconds after launch. Oh, because they're like under yeah. a huge amount of G-forces and they're... Yeah. You've ju- oh, God. And it's just like such a thrill, I think, to be like launching into space. Or you're trying not to vomit. Yeah, or cry or like yeah. scream yeah. or I don't even know. Pass out. Yeah. They can all urinate themselves, yeah. at least. <laughs> That's good. I'm very happy for them. And then while they were in space, they deployed two satellites, like let them out, basically. Mm-hmm. They operated the robot arm. <laughs> Excellent. And for the first time, they used the arm to deploy and retrieve a satellite. Okay. So, so like, they're not landing on, no, like, the no. moon. They're going into space, they're orbiting, and then they're coming back Yeah, down. and, like, doing experiments in space. Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. They conducted the first formation flying of the shuttle with the free-flying satellite. So, like, they flew together. Okay. And they carried out a number of experiments, like an electrophoresis experiment, a latex reactor experiment. Yeah. Just random things. Yeah. Seeing how things work in space. (laughs) And... um, No monkeys? No monkeys. Mm. I don't think they did stuff like that. So, the mission lasted 147 hours, or about, like, a week or so. Okay. And then it landed on a lake bed runway at Edwards Air Force Base in California on June 24th. And she says that the thing I'll remember most about the flight is that it was fun. In fact, I'm sure it was the most fun I'll ever have in my life. Which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And when she first came back, again, the press was like, how was it? Like, did your ovaries explode? Yeah. <laughs> did you use a hundred tampons? <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, like, NASA wasn't really able to, like, protect her as much this time. Because yeah. they didn't have the excuse, like, she's training. And really, they'd already gone sort of above and beyond yeah. what, how they usually treated that, the astronauts. And she's a really private person and did not like talking to the press. But anyway, so I think that was a little stressful. But she was soon assigned to go into space again. Nice. And then got to go back in a train. That's the one place the press cannot yeah. come with you. I know. Into space. Yeah. Yeah. At least not at this time. Yeah. Yeah. So that was her second flight was a 13th shuttle flight, which launched from Kennedy Space Center um, on October 5th, 1984, the largest crew to date of seven people. And during that eight-day mission, they deployed a satellite, conducted scientific observations of Earth, and they demonstrated potential satellite refueling with an EVA. Do you know what that is? Uh, extra vehicle... Yeah. I don't know what the A stands for. Extra vehicular activity. Ah. Which is actually, this was the first flight to have two women on it. Because Catherine Sullivan was also on the flight. And Catherine was the one who did the EVA. So, like, she went out of the shuttle. Okay, gotcha. Sort of like, uh, what's that, gravity? Don't they they spend a lot of time, like, out of the shuttle? I never saw gravity. (laughs) Is that a movie? 
Yeah. Oh, I don't oh. know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I In the Martian, they like, do EVAs. Yeah, yeah. On, uh, well, on Mars. I just so remember every poster for Gravity, it's like Sandra Bullock or George Clooney are like floating in space. I have no idea what this movie is. This is like a big movie. Yeah, apparently okay. it has Sandra Bullock and George, George Clooney. I think, yeah. The Cloonster. So, yeah, that one lasted um, about a week as well and landed on October 13th, 1984. In 1985, Sally was assigned to a third mission, but that was delayed in January 1986 after the Challenger shuttle exploded shortly after takeoff, like the famous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, killing all seven crew members. Ugh. And since she had experience with that particular shuttle, like mm-hmm. she'd ridden in it, she was assigned by Ronald Reagan to the Presidential Commission investigating the explosion. Gotcha. Which wasn't easy because many of the astronauts were her friends. Yeah, and like that's got to be yeah. awful. And through testimony and other evidence, they learned that there had been quite a few warning signs on earlier Challenger flights. And specifically, there was like uh, that guy who told everyone that at a certain temperature, this one thing will break if they launch at that temperature, basically. And that's exactly what they did. Gotcha. And, yeah. But anyway, those warning signs had been ignored, and the commission eventually stated that the explosion was a result of bad organization and decision-making on NASA's part, and that the agency had violated its own safety rules. So, pretty sad. The guy who gave, the engineer who had warned everyone, after he gave, he, I think, felt guilty, like, almost his whole life that he didn't, like, warn them more strongly, essentially. But he said that after his testimony, um, Sally, who was known to be reserved and reticent, publicly hugged him. Aww. And she was the only panelist to offer him any support. And he said that gesture helped him sustain him during troubled times, like in his whole life, basically. Aww. So sad. Yeah. Okay. So she never flew again, and people asked her if that's because of the explosion. Mm-hmm. And she says... That that's not why she didn't fly again, but actually that she had always planned on going back to academia, but it just took so long to get shuttles running again that she basically didn't want to wait at yeah, NASA. that makes sense. So she just didn't go again. And so she, after that investigation was completed, she um, was assigned to NASA headquarters for long-range strategic planning, she wrote a report entitled Leadership in America's Future in Space and became the first director of NASA's Office of Exploration. Man. And in this report, the team recommended an outpost on the moon. Oh. And also said that while Mars should still be the ultimate objective, the U.S. shouldn't try to race to get there. Which is sort of interesting yeah. now that everyone wants to go to Mars yeah. all of a sudden. Nobody wants to hang out on the moon. Yeah. And she and her husband got divorced in 1987, around the same time she left NASA. Okay. Okay, post-NASA. For the first two years after leaving, she was a science fellow at Stanford. Um, and But pretty quickly, she was appointed... <gasps> meow, meow, meow. Oh, <laughs> do you want to be on podcast? Tell us about science. 
1989, Sally was appointed professor of physics at UC San Diego. Okay. And she became the director of the university's California Space Institute, or CalSpace. Nice. And this institute conducts and supports space research with a special emphasis on the application of space technology in the practice of remote sensing and in the study of global climate change. Basically does a lot of important things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, her personal webpage is still up, and it definitely was made in, like, the early 2000s <laughs> or the 90s. It describes her research research interests as such. So get and get ready for a bunch of words. I'm ex- I'm ready I for words. I don't understand and cannot explain. Okay. Um, quote: My research interests center on the theory of nonlinear beam wave interactions. Uh huh. Okay. Primarily connected with free electron lasers and related nonlinear systems. All right. I have published work on a single particle description of conventional free electron lasers and analysis of novel lasers. I'm interested in scattering of intense layers off beams and plasmas, and more recently in certain areas of space plasma physics, including nonlinear effects associated with Whistler propagation in the magnetosphere. So she's obviously very smart. (laughs) Unless she didn't know what any of that meant. Yeah, unless she just made all that The up. whisker magnetosphere. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure she did. Um, I ran out of time to, like, really read a lot of her papers. And I mean, yeah. no good synthesis, no yeah. good dumbing down of her research anywhere. So I just thought I would read that out for anyone I love who, it. who's interested. Whoever in can this. tease that apart and, yeah. get, and glean something out of it. However, there was one paper on her website that I understood, um... Okay, this was the title of one of her selected publications from 1997. Wave activity near Pluto. Yeah. So that's... There's wave activity near Pluto? I know all of those words. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I think she spent a lot of time on this research and was happy to be back doing astrophysics research because mostly she'd done, like, engineering stuff at NASA. Yeah. Um. But she also became heavily involved in increasing representation of women in the sciences. Nice. Focusing most of her effort on middle school ages. Because at the time, I think that's when a lot of girls were dropping out. And going into tennis. Yeah. And going... Especially, like, physics and math. I think that's when... Yeah, it's a... Yeah. She wrote quite a few children's books to inspire kids to pursue careers or interests Interests. Interests. To pursue careers or interests in the sciences. In 2001, she started a non-profit organization with her life partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy, called Sally Ride Science, with the goal to make fun, entertaining science media for kids, and especially girls. And they sponsored, like, clubs and camps, and they, like, wrote books together. Nice. Like, really cool. In 2003, Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entering the atmosphere, killing all the entire crew. And Sally was asked once again to be on the investigating oh, committee. That's got to be so hard. Yeah. Which, there was something like when the shuttle came back in, it hit a piece of foam. And that's like one of the reasons why. Foam? I don't know like where the foam came from. Like I didn't in the be, air? Yeah. But they still concluded that, although that was, like, the main cause of the explosion, Uh 
there was something about management practices that helped influence this. I, I couldn't quite understand, or I didn't read the whole report, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, in all, she was, like, <laughs> that's just, like, another, I don't know. Thing she... She did, yeah. She was really, though, like, truly passionate about increasing excitement for sciences in kids and spent much of her time pursuing that goal while research, being a researcher at UC San Diego. And then um, it was a surprise to almost everyone when she died of pancreatic cancer in 2012. Aww. At the age of 61. So very young. Oh, so young. Yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah. So like a lot of her life, Sally was very private and had told almost no one that she was sick. Mm. And also, it was only in her obituary that she publicly revealed her 27-year relationship with Tam is a lady? Yeah. Gotcha. And her partner in this, like, Sally Ride Science, like, they'd worked together for years. And she'd known Tam since they were kids because they met at tennis camps. And Tam had been a professional tennis player. Oh. (laughs) And then went on to become a psychology professor at UC San Diego. A school psychology professor. Her family and and close friends knew and, like, considered Tam part of their family. But Sally never thought it was necessary to tell the public, and she just didn't like being in the public eye and knew that that would draw a lot of attention. Yeah, more attention. But she did approve, like, the announcement in her obituary of their relationship. The year following her death, she was posthumously awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, um, the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama, and Tam still continues to run like Sally Ride Science today, oh, nice. and, like making children's books and encouraging children to like go into STEM fields. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's it. Ride Sally Ride. I know, isn't she great? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I had never known about her like research career. Yeah, or like. I didn't know, like, how she got into NASA or, like, anything like that. I mean, once you go into space twice, like, there's really nothing else to see. <laughs> you might as well move on. Like, it's sort of remarkable that she even wanted to go back to academia Yeah. after going into space. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess just really dedicated. Yeah. Dedicated to, to the craft. That's cool. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. Nice. I love it. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and we had mentioned her... At the last episode. Yeah. Real quickly. She's the first woman in space and the first, like, LGBT person in space. Nice. Work, 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 work. All right. This is the work, work, work section. The section of this podcast where we talk about women doing science today. And I've got two shout-outs. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is is shout out this week to a study conducted by PhD candidate Caitlin Gaynor and colleagues at Berkeley and Boise State University. Uh, they found that mammals are becoming more nocturnal due to human influence. Did oh, you see? Yeah, I saw headlines about yeah. that, but I didn't look at the study. Um, so in this study, they conducted a meta-analysis, and they did an, a meta-analysis of 76 studies looking at 62 mammalian species and found that non-lethal human activities such as, like, hiking or driving or, like, construction or urban development, things that don't actually necessarily kill 
mammals yeah. that these human activities increased nocturnality in 83% of cases. Mammals are becoming more nocturnal right. and are spending more time during the night than they generally do otherwise. Organisms that are generally more diurnal are becoming more nocturnal. And this suggests that animals, in addition to like spatial avoidance in humans, because we know that animals kind of spatially will segregate themselves from humans, yeah. but they might also be doing this in a temp- temporal way as well. So I think um, sometimes I do that. Yeah. Like become more nocturnal when there's lots <laughs> yeah. of people around. I like to stay up late. Like being up late is like my time. Nice. Yeah. Even though I'm always just alone in my apartment, <laughs> whether it's late or but, early. But you don't hear like right. Yeah. I also I mean, feel I like you you assume that you're supposed to be doing something yeah. during the daytime hours, and then once it's like everybody's it's asleep, like, you yeah. can do whatever. Yeah, I can watch all the Netflix. <laughs> Listen to my upstairs neighbors. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So my second shout out goes to biologist Susanna Blackwell and colleagues at Green Ridge Sciences Incorporated. So Susanna is a senior scientist at Green Ridge Sciences Incorporated, which is one of the first companies dedicated to documenting the acoustic environment of marine animals. Whoa. So this week they published a paper in PLOS One where they actually uh, hooked up microphones or, you know, acoustic recorders to narwhals. What? Yeah. How do you do... Are narwhals dangerous, do you know? Because they have those giant horns. Um... I mean, I don't think people are often killed by narwhals. That's true. Yeah, you're right. I've never <laughs> like, have you ever? Yeah. Uh, they could be, but one, they're so rare, and yeah. two, I I just don't think that's what yeah. their their game is. Oh, that's so cool. So they like could. So do they like scuba dive with narwhals? So what? I'm not sure how they. I'm guessing they kind of you know. I saw a picture of it, and they kind of brought the narwhal up to very shallow. Yeah. Kind of you know in a you know net or something like that and then they attach this little microphone to it so that they can actually get the acoustic environment that the narwhal experiences right. and get the sounds that the narwhal is making because i guess they often to do these kind of acoustic environments they'll put a microphone just in the water but then you can't tell who's making those yeah. noises and you can't tell there's a lot that you miss out yeah, by doing it that sense. way so now they're getting like a narwhal perspective of what noises they're making, so what noises cool. they're hearing. And they did this for the East Greenland narwhal. Um, and they looked at, listened to the clicks, buzzes, and calls of this animal. Wow. And I, what they're trying to do is create a baseline of understanding like what these narwhal sounds like. And then, then you can figure out kind of how urban sounds, um, such as boats and stuff like that, how much those sounds are going to potentially influence narwhal communication because if they sound a lot you know there's the same frequency or same cadence that could throw them off so trying to understand just how that any of those sounds they're reacting and uh, what their communication sounds like so i couldn't find a video of the sounds but maybe i'll dig if i find it i will post it oh okay yeah because i want to hear what they sound like so those are my shout outs i love it yeah Yeah, that's so fun yeah that's so cool. How do you, like, get into narwhal research? I know? don't know. I want to see a narwhal. 
I, they just are like the closest thing that exists to unicorns. Yeah, unicorns of the sea. They're the unicorns of the sea, and it's amazing that they exist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so those are my shoutouts. I love it. Yay! Yeah! Good job, lady. Yeah, good going gals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so please rate review subscribe to us if you if you like what we're doing uh it helps people find the show and it helps us kind of morally stick with it (laughs) yeah i mean if no one listens eventually we'd have to stop if no one listens does the podcast even does the podcast exist yeah it's a great question no people are listening but we would love to hear your thoughts yeah uh, by you guys rating reviewing and subscribing And then our theme song was Mary Anning by Artichoke. You can tweet at us. Tweet at us. Email us. All of it stem tall pod. Yeah. Yeah. Stem you later. Stem you later. (laughs) Bye.